Trinity Baptist Church. Advent is a Latin word that means coming. Advent is partly a time of joy in expectation of the Savior's birth and partly a season of penance in expectation of the judgment on the last day. The advent of Christ points to his past coming in Bethlehem, his future coming at the end of time, and his present coming through the grace in the hearts of men. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33, Luke writes, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. You will be with a child, and you will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. As we light the second Advent candle, let us remember to wait expectantly for the Lord. The second Sunday in Advent is the Sunday of Peace. We light the Bethlehem candle to symbolize the preparations being made to receive and to cradle the Christ child. The second candle reminds us of the dark night when Mary and Joseph found light and warmth in the stable in Bethlehem. Well done. Thank you. Good morning. Have any of you seen this? Yes. Um, Confession. I bought this last January. It was actually on newsstands last Christmas, but I didn't see it until after Christmas, so I had to save it for this year. Um, But this is a Time Life magazine devoted um, expressly to Jesus and his life and times. On the cover it says, Who do you say that I am? And the first article in here is titled, The Carpenter's Son Who Changed Everything. This is time life, okay? This isn't the Bible. This is not necessarily a Christian, well, it's not a Christian publication. But they recognize that this one central figure changed the course of history. And I'm just going to read some pieces from this. First paragraph. From the most modest of means in a volatile part of the world that people of varying faiths would come to call the Holy Land, a young man emerged whose radical, inspiring philosophy seemed not only a challenge to religious orthodoxy and political authority, but perhaps a course forward through life, which was so often a veil of tears." He developed a following, and after his martyrdom, when he was barely 30 years of age, a cult. What would become the world's largest religion grew in the shadows and clandestine churches of the pagan Roman Empire until finally the empire, not the dissidents who regularly sacrificed life and liberty for their beliefs, yielded. Who was this man? That's the question that the magazine asks. Who was this man? It goes on, it says, To some, Jesus is the Son of God, the anointed, the Christ, born to a virgin just more than 2,000 years ago. To others, Jesus is just a man, albeit a man who spurred through his teachings and exemplary life several faiths now incorporated into Christianity. And to still others, he is little more than a myth. 
But it goes on to talk about the fact that regardless of, of what our belief about him is, that people all over the world try to unite with him in some way or another. He says a great many of us, the writer says a great many of us, Christians and not, want Jesus on our team. We want to be his teammate. We want to be like him. And we want him to be like us. And I think that's where we we find ourselves a, a lot of the time is trying to make Jesus like us. We want to, to create him in a way that we can, we can relate to him. And, and he talks about the fact that all over the world, people have, have portrayed Jesus in various ways that make him more uh, approachable to them. He says, the Africans know a dark-skinned Jesus, the Swedes a blonde one, the Chinese an Asiatic one. Americans picture the bearded Jesus of a billion prayer book covers. We see Jesus in our image. I think that's true. We pigeonhole him. We, we have preconceived notions of who he is. But this, this first article ends with this paragraph. It says, The testimony of these diverse witnesses makes one point clear. Whether Jesus was sent from heaven or not, whether he died on the cross or not, and ascended or did not, Jesus is alive in our time. To believers and non-believers alike, Jesus matters, still matters. He long has, he always will. Good. (laughs) Well done. Um, Last week we started this, uh, was the first Sunday of Advent, and we started this series called Turning Point where we are looking at the life of this man who literally was the turning point of history. And as, as the magazine says, he is the carpenter's son who changed everything. And last week we talked about the fact that the world that he came into was so tumultuous and in such disarray that it made it difficult for even the Jews who were looking for Messiah, to recognize him for who he was. And so the question that I want us to consider this morning, and I think it's appropriate that we consider it in this season, is the, the question that, that Life magazine asks, who is this man? Or as Jesus himself asked, who do you say that I am? Because we have these preconceived notions of who Jesus is. We, we, we've made him fit into our image. But is the, the notion of who I have of Jesus, is it consistent with who he really was? That's what I want us to wrestle with this morning. So um, I, I think it's hard. It's hard for us to know, recognize or know who Jesus was because we're 2,000 years removed. But it was hard for the, for the men who walked with him to really see him for who he truly was. So this morning, I want us to look at a text of Scripture that you probably wouldn't normally look at at Christmas time. But I think it's one that will help us better appreciate the, the challenge of recognizing for Jesus for who he is. It's in Mark chapter 4. 
And I want to start in verse 35. It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. Now, if you, if you go back to the first verse of Mark 4, you'll see that Jesus is in the boat. So the whole chapter uh, of Mark 4 Jesus is in the boat. And the reason he gets in the boat in the first place is because he's, he's wanting to teach the crowd. And they're pressing in on him. And so in order to, to give him some space, he gets in a boat and, they, and he pushes out a little bit from shore so that he can preach, teach the, the crowd on, on the shore. And he begins in Mark chapter 4, if you're looking at it, teaching the parable of the sower. Which, by the way, is what is depicted in our stained glass. Did you know that? Jan knows that. Um, okay, so I'll give you a little bit of picture. Okay, you got Jesus in the boat, and you can tell he's in the boat because he's got fish swimming around him. You see that? And then above him, you've got the crowd that are on the shore, and above them, you've got their collective thought bubble. That's what it is. They're... That's their thought bubble because he's talking to them about the, the sower who's scattering seed. And then you've got the, the thorns and the, the plants growing up. You've got the birds coming down to get it. So anyway, you can go and study that later. Um, so Jesus teaches the parable of the sower. And then he moves from that to talking about a lamp on a stand and then from that he goes to talking about some different kinds of seeds and then he goes to 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 the smallest of all seeds this mustard seed talking about faith you see what Jesus is doing is he's 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 doing what any good teacher does he teaches in down-to-earth illustrations that everybody could could um understand and and say, oh yeah, I I get that. He's helping them connect the dots. You see, Jesus fit all the normal categories. He was a carpenter turned rabbi who uses down-to-earth illustrations. And, And he was what the disciples, that was their preconceived notion of who Jesus is. He was easily pigeonholed. Now, I don't know about you, but I have pigeonholed Jesus in different ways at different times in my life. When I was, when I was a child growing up in church, I went to Sunday school, and my, the picture I had of Jesus then was of flannel graph Jesus. How many of you know flannel graphs? Come on. Okay, for all of you young people who don't know anything other than technology, this was low-tech stuff where you got a piece of paper, you cut out the picture, and you rubbed it on, on a flannel board, and then you could, it would stick there. So you, that's right. That's what, so then you could move the pictures around, you know, and that was high-tech for growing up. So that was my childhood picture of Jesus. That Jesus was this tender, 
lamb-toting shepherd who was just always there to support and comfort and forgive. And there was, he didn't have any hard edges. Um, he was kind of like Mr. Rogers in sandals, okay? Okay, a few of you know who Mr. Rogers is. And actually, Mr. Rogers, actually, when I got up and I looked in the mirror today, I go, you're dressing like Mr. Rogers today. <laughs> that was not intentional, but I was feeling Mr. Rogers-esque. Anyway, so, so that was my childhood image of Jesus. And as a teenager, I got a little different picture of him. I largely through the ministry of Young Life, I came to see Jesus as, as a friend, as, as a confidant, as someone who would walk through life with me, that I could share my struggles with and my pains with, and he was always there to support me. He was, um, he was a comfort, and when I asked, he would be a guide, but he, he was not one that would be confrontive. He was kind of like Wally Cleaver, if you will. Anybody know who Wally Cleaver is? Come on! I know I'm old, but it's... I was trying to come up with some contemporary... So, So that's my teenage Jesus. When I got to college, Jesus, Jesus kept evolving for me. He, he still shared the, the, you know, the comfort and tenderness of, of my childhood Jesus and the camaraderie of my, my teenage Jesus. But now there was, there was a little bit higher call. Now it was, Jesus was saying, yes, I'm going to be there to forgive and to guide and all that. But you need to be holy. And, and I want you to serve. So it was, there was this call to service and a, and a call to an upright life. And, but if I'm honest, the call of Jesus that I heard, even in college, was, yes, I want you to live uprightly. Yes, I want you to serve me with all your heart. But if those things don't work for you, I'll still be there to forgive and comfort. And that'll work. Then I got to seminary. And all of those pictures of Jesus just got exploded because I started to have to wrestle and grapple with questions that I hadn't been thinking about before. And one question that, that, I, that I still remember just kind of being dumbfounded by was, what in the world would cause a man who taught about love and compassion and being kind to one another, what would cause people to crucify that guy? I mean, what authority on the planet would crucify Mr. Rogers or Wally Cleaver? It didn't make sense. Now, I don't know if you've pigeonholed Jesus, if you've got some preconceived ideas of, of who he is. But my guess is 
that many of us have this picture of Jesus, that he's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And that's kind of where the disciples were. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's a, he's a carpenter turned rabbi. He's a good preacher, teacher. He's teaching things in a way that, that are really appealing, really attractive. We haven't heard it like this before. This is good stuff. We'll follow him. We'll submit to his expertise in this. That was their notion of him. But then in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4, everything changes. Because they've been submitting to his expertise as a teacher, and now he submits to their expertise as fishermen. He says, let's get on the boat, and you do what you do, and I'll go take a nap. And so the scene shifts. Verse 37. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Okay, that's important. Okay? Huge storm. Water's pouring into the boat. It's going down. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? You need to hear the tone in their cry. This is not, these are not guys going and asking for divine intervention. They don't know Jesus is divine. He hasn't done anything to make them think that at this point. The, the, this is the frantic plea of guys who think they're going to drown because their boat is being swamped in this storm. And so basically they're saying, Rabbi, would you wake up and come help us bail? Verse 39. He got up, but he didn't help bail. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild? I don't think so. Can you imagine the look on the disciples' faces? What would the look on your face have been? If you had been there when he calmed this storm. I mean I think we can imagine when we look at. Read verse 40. He said to his disciples. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You see these guys were terrified. But now it wasn't of the storm. Now it was of Jesus. Who had just calmed the storm. You see what their problem was? Their problem was was our problem. They had been comfortably living in their comfortable categories. Here's a, here's a rabbi. He knows theology. We are his students. We don't. We're fishermen. We know boats. He's a rabbi. He doesn't. Nice, simple. But all of a sudden, their categories just fell apart. And he challenged them not on their competence as students or even as fishermen, but he challenged them on their faith. 
Verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Why do you think they asked that question? Because they didn't know. They thought they knew. He, up to that point, he had fit all of their categories. But then the storm thing happens and and it just obliterates who they thought Jesus was. I think this story serves as a, a vivid example of the paradox of Jesus. On the one hand, he was just like them. His ancestors were their ancestors. He had, he had kinfolk that they knew. He had desires and needs and um, temptations just like they did. He, they observed abilities that he had that were not so dissimilar from other men that they knew. But then the storm thing happens and all of a sudden pigeonholing him isn't easy anymore. So they ask themselves the very question that Jesus would ask later. They ask, who is this? In Jesus' words, who do you say that I am? That's the question that we have to address. And I can't think of a better time to address it than Christmas. Um, Apparently, Life magazine thought it was a good question to address at Christmas too. I mean, who is this Jesus whose birth we celebrate in this season? I mean, we spend a month pulling out the stops. Well, retailers spend two months pulling out the stops all around the celebration of this guy's birthday. Like the disciples, though, we've got some preconceived notions that we have to break through. Initially, they had regarded Jesus as just an ordinary rabbi, but then the storm thing happens. And and then over the next several years, as they walk with him, the story, the picture of him doesn't get clearer. It gets more complex. Here was a man who spoke almost nothing at all about Roman occupation, which was the main topic of conversation for everyone else. And yet he would go into the temple with whips to drive out some of his own people. Here was a man who urged obedience to the Mosaic law while at the same time gaining a reputation as a lawbreaker. Here was a man who had great compassion on complete strangers, but often would chide his closest friends for their lack of belief. Here was a man who had uncompromising views on rich men and loose women, and yet seemed to spend a lot of his time hanging out with those very people. Who is this guy? One day miracles seem to flow out of him and the next day he can't do anything because of the lack of faith of the people around him. One day he speaks in detail about his second coming and the next day he says, I don't know the, the, the day or the hour 
One day he flees from arrest and another he walks unflinchingly toward it. And his extravagant claims about himself made him the center of controversy. But when he did something truly miraculous that would bring an end to that controversy, he told everybody who witnessed it, don't tell anyone. Really? I love what the theologian Walter Wink has to say about Jesus. He said, if Jesus had never lived, we would never have been able to invent him. If Jesus had never lived, we would never have been able to invent him. In describing Jesus, no one would ever use the words boring or predictable. He doesn't fit into any of our preconceived categories. He is a paradox of unimaginable proportion. And yet somehow in our culture, we have regressed to the place from which the disciples began. We've grown comfortable and I think too comfortable with whom we think Jesus is. As the writer Dorothy Sayers put it, um, we have very efficiently Paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Friends, Jesus is not Mr. Rogers or Wally Cleaver. I like the way that Philip Yancey has characterized the paradox that is Jesus. He says, Jesus was a human being a Jew with a name and a family, a person who was in, in a way just like everyone else. Yet in another way, he was something different than anyone had ever lived on the earth before. It took the church five centuries of active debate to agree on some sort of epistemological balance between just like everyone else and something different. Friends, in a very real historical sense, Jesus was just like everyone else. Just like you, just like me. He got tired and hungry and thirsty. He had desires. He had needs. He um, had temptations. As the writer of Hebrews says, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. In a In a very real historical sense. He was just like all of us. And yet, he was also something very different. Um, the theologian Karl Barth said that he is totally other. And because there was something very different about him. It caused his followers to believe and it caused his opponents to want him dead. In a few weeks, we will celebrate or at least acknowledge the fact that we have the beginning of a new year. And for reasons that I still can't understand, hundreds of thousands of people will 
cram into Times Square <laughs> to watch a Waterford crystal ball slide down a 70-foot pole that will mark the beginning of 2015. I don't get it. All eyes in London will be focused on Big Ben, the clock at Westminster, waiting for that hand to click over to 12 midnight, and then all of London will go nuts. In cities all over the world, there will be huge celebrations marking the the beginning of this new year. And while I doubt that any of the event organizers readily understand this. What they are doing is they are implicitly pointing to the life of Jesus Christ. In fact, every morning when you boot up your computer, Microsoft or Apple point to the life of Jesus Christ when they flash today's date. Because everything in history is either before Jesus or after Jesus. He is the turning point of human history. This Galilean, who in his lifetime spoke to fewer people than attend just one New York Giants home game, even when they're having a losing season, which I'm really okay with, by the way, This guy who spoke to less than will be in Giant Stadium in the course of his life changed the world more than anyone has ever changed the world. The indisputable indisputable fact is that Jesus is the most influential man who has ever lived. More books have been written about him and his teaching than about any other man in ideology by far. And though his followers during his life were few, he now holds the allegiance of over a third of the world's population. People even use his name as a curse. You know, I've been on a lot of golf courses and heard a lot of curse words. I may have even let a few slip myself. But I have never once heard the name Muhammad used as a curse. I hear Jesus Christ all the time. The fact is, we simply cannot get away from this man. As the axiom says, you can gauge the size of the ship that is passed by the size of the wake it leaves behind. No one else's wake even comes close to comparing with the wake of this man named Jesus. All that said, we are not talking about Jesus today or in this season because he had such a huge impact on history. Um, If that were the case, we could talk about Alexander the Great or Charlemagne or... Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King. We're, we're not talking about Jesus because he positioned himself as the turning point of history. We're talking about Jesus because 
he says that he is the turning point of people's lives. More specifically, my life and your life. So whether or not you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, the question that each of us needs to seriously consider is, who is he really? I think it's remarkable that when you read through the Gospels, the Gospels operate more as a mystery novel than as a connect-the-dots drawing. And it's as if, through the gospel writers, God, was saying, God is saying to us, examine me, test me, and then you decide. You decide who I am. Who do you say that I am? That's what we need to do. Friends, our culture, Christians included, has become much too comfortable with the idea of Jesus. And whether or not we have placed him into a convenient category like the, like the first disciples did, one thing is certain, we are not conflicted by him. Truth is, there are literally millions of people who are ambivalent about Jesus. But in my reading of the New Testament, I've never seen one person ambivalent about him. You see, Jesus does not give you ambivalence as an option. When you see Jesus for who he really is, you will either fall on your knees and say, my Lord and my God, or you will go with the Pharisees and you will say, he leads the multitudes astray. Jesus doesn't give you a fence to sit on. So who is this man? Is he Mr. Rogers or Wally Cleaver? Is he carpenter turned rabbi? Is he like everyone else? Or is he something entirely different? My hope and prayer for all of us during this Christmas season is that we will lay aside our preconceived images of the Jesus we thought we knew and we will meet Jesus again for the first time. As Life magazine says, Jesus still matters. And if my understanding of Scripture is accurate, no one who meets the true Jesus will ever be the same. Let me pray for us. Lord, I confess that I have pigeonholed you. Even though you amaze me at times, and I get to see um, storms being calmed, I still find myself trying to put you into categories, and you just won't fit. 
Lord, I pray for me that you will help me to see you anew again this season, that I will see you for who you are, that I won't try to make you into a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, preconceived Jesus, but I will let you be you. And I pray that for all of us, Lord, that we would, we would see you for who you truly are in this season. And, and then we would come to the manger and worship. If you're here this morning and uh, you've never seen Jesus for who he is, You've, you've never begun a relationship with him that goes beyond just the Christmas and Easter kind of thing. And I would invite you to allow the Holy Spirit to, to lead you into that relationship today. Because God became man He stepped out of the throne room of heaven and entered the womb of an unmarried teenage girl so that he could be born and laid in a feeding trough. And after 30 years of obscurity and poverty, he stepped onto the world stage and he changed everything. He changed everything because he died on a cross and then he rose from the dead. If you're here this morning and you've never begun a relationship with this God who loves you so much that he would give his life, then you can do that today. Just say, Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. You are the Son of God, you are the Savior. And I place my trust, my faith 